Magdalena. And you see us all in the same size picture? Uh-huh. Okay. And then uh, what do you see now? Constance Hubbard, I don't know. Elizabeth is small. Elizabeth is all of a sudden just got small. My <laughs> picture bigger now and everyone else's looks a little bit smaller. Well, Ruth, Ruth is yes. just... And she's, and the only one littler is Elizabeth. The question I have for you is this, is me as speaking, is my picture the biggest? Uh, it's the same as everybody else's except Elizabeth. <laughs> Elizabeth's is tall and skinny. <laughs> I'm going to stay with this view here, this, that way we can see everybody. Um, because Elizabeth is using her phone. We're at 10. Pardon me? So we'll You're using your phone? Uh, yes. Yes, sorry. <laughs> All right, we're going to start with uh, prayer, and we'll go from there. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Lord Irvin, hello, uh, Adriana, Rob, Connie, Ruth, Elena, Elizabeth, Ed, Lynn is not visible. And we have Carol and Dean joining us uh, on site at St. Matthew's. So. We kind of got a reverse thing. Usually, I couple of people online feeling like outsiders, and now we're all at this online thing. We invited Carol and, and Dean into anyway. Good to good to be with you all. Uh, we're studying Chapter 18. I sent out an email on it. Hopefully, you got that. Um, that um, The main thing that, that I wanted to highlight, and we'll walk through some of the details of that in our um, in in the Bible class, is that this is going to um, chapter 18 is going to proclaim the downfall of Babylon the Great, and um, in the narrative of Revelation, we're going to see that this is a euphemism. Uh, a transferred identity, meaning old covenant, unfaithful, first century Israel epitomized by the leaders. Um, and I gave you the, the, the last verse of this chapter is the one that I think to me um, really cinches this identity. And we'll just, we'll wait on that. But the, the idea is that Israel, old covenant, first century Israel, that the, that the group that conspired to uh, sentenced Jesus to death and hand him over to Pilate, the, the nation that continued to, to persecute and martyr his followers after his resurrection and ascension, has ceased to be God's new covenant people and has taken on the narrative identity of Babylon uh, in, in the Bible. And as I suggested, the Babylon um, uh, is, is the place where in the Old Covenant where Israel went into captivity at the end of the Old Covenant, the place where God's people were held captive until God set them free. And so the narrative transference here is that 
God's uh, new covenant, his new covenant people are now, um, are now, as we've seen throughout Revelation, they are tabernacled in heaven. We'll get more into that, but that was what was revealed to us in Revelation 4 and 5. Um, very important verse to, to connect to all this in our current experience is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, where, where St. Paul says, God has raised us up and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that when John is seeing the church in heaven, the four and twenty elders, the multitude which no one could number, he's not just thinking of a future reality called heaven. He's thinking of the current status of all those through, through baptism and faith in Christ who becomes God's new covenant people. They now live in this proximity to God's throne. They have access to him through prayer. All the prayer promises of John's gospel, whatever you ask in my name, uh, he'll give you, that apply to those new covenants. The former covenant now has connected Bishop, it's hard to hear you. You're, I don't know, for my end, it's, you're kind of garbled. I don't know if you need to get closer to your actual microphone or, or what. I know. Yeah, I, I can't hear well either. Yeah. yeah, I noticed yeah, last I'm having trouble. We had that as well, and they changed, somehow they changed the channel, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, my, my camera is now and always has been in my, in my, uh, my mic is in my camera. There's no way to get closer to it. Uh, okay. You can- Well, now I you sound better. better. Okay. okay, I turn my volume up a little bit there. Is that, that sounds better? Right yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so Israel, old covenant Israel, the unfaith woman, the whore, who we talked about last week, is now epitomized as Babylon because she holds God's new covenant people captive, and she will be judged, and his new covenant people set free um, from that captivity. So that's how the the word Bab. That's how we we make this 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 identity in this kind of narrative transference. So let's just walk, let's read through the, let's read through the, uh, the chapter and, and feel free if you have questions to, I can usually see your hand if you raise it or just chime in if you'd like to ask a question. Chapter 18, verse one. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Um, this seems to, to be Jesus in the sense that um, uh, he has great authority and the earth is illuminated with his glory. It resonates with certain things that Jesus says in John's gospel. Remember that we're viewing John's gospel and the revelation uh, to St. John as being common literature coming from us and you see some of the same symbols so when we refer in jaws gospel jesus says i am the light of the world and we hear an echo here that the um the earth is illuminated with his glory we see some resonance here that might uh let us know that this mighty angel is there's not a sure identification but there are hints 
certainly like that. Um, and um, so there, so there's that another angel coming down. And verse two, and he cried mightily with a loud voice. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So this is a voice with great authority. So what he's saying means something. It's it 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 is it um it sticks. Now to understand this verse, that has become a dwelling place of demons, to remember what was supposed to be Israel's, what was Israel, Jerusalem, supposed to be characterized by? Who was supposed to dwell there? God. God. That's where the temple was. So in... In what we got, what we got in, um, in, um, for example, when Solomon dedicates the temple back in Kings, um, and he says his prayer of blessing, and the glory cloud descends on the temple, and God takes up residence in the holy of holies, and so Jerusalem is where God lives among His people. The temple of the Old Testament was the dwelling place of God. And the various judgments that we see in the Old Testament um, are occasioned by the presence of God leaving. So, for example, in the Old Covenant, at the end of the Old Testament, when the Babylonians in, invaded uh, Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. and destroyed the first temple, Solomon's temple, and burned it to the ground in judgment, um, just before that happened, the prophet Ezekiel gives a vision in Ezekiel chapter, you know, it kind of carries on from 1 to 10, where he gets a vision where God, who had taken up residence in the Holy of Holies, actually gets up from the Holy of Holies and leaves the temple. So that God had to go away, and once God goes away and his presence is no longer there, then the uh, the temple is open to destruction, and so in the new covenant, um, the the fulfillment of this God dwelling with His people in what was foreshadowed in the temple was to be become its its clearest and permanent reality in the fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, as Saint John says, and we beheld His glory, and God, and Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And so God himself now has come to dwell among his people and redeem them and save them and live with them. But um, as, as the first chapter of John's gospel says, he came unto his own and his own received him not. And so because Old Covenant Israel in the first century um, rejected this presence of, of Christ, to, to, to crucifixion, it didn't fulfill its 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 
vocation as the place where God dwells, and having rejected God, it becomes to habitation by evil spirits. And this is epitomized um, in, a, in a passage in Matthew's gospel um, that um, I'll read it. Jesus casts uh, a demon out of, out of a, a man and his opponents say, well, he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the chief of demons. And, and here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, here's the last line of this verse. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. So as Jesus is conducting his ministry and being rejected by the people, he's saying, you're all marveling about the exorcism, but you're rejecting the presence. And rejecting the presence means you're going to open yourself up to habitation, as Revelation says, a, 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 dwell, a, a, a place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. All the things that Israel was not supposed to be unclean, it becomes because of the rejection of Christ. Um, Here's also a passage, um, and the thing we'd be aware of here is that what's happening in AD 70, again, I want to be clear for everyone who isn't, has never grasped on the, on the history, that at the end of the Old Testament, um, in the year 586 BC, when Israel was unfaithful, the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple and carried Israel out, off into exile. In AD 70, when Israel is unfaithful, the Romans are going to come and destroy the, the second temple. And the events are somewhat parallel. The difference between the destruction of the temple at the end of the Old Covenant and the destruction of the temple in AD 70 is that um, after the Babylonian invasion and captivity, Israel returned and rebuilt. It wasn't yet the end of the old covenant because the rebuilt temple, Christ was still going to come to Israel and there was still opportunity for Israel to receive. But now once the, um, once the, um, the Son of God has come in fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And first century Israel, the last Old Covenant generation, rejects him. 
now the judgment that comes on the temple in AD 70 is final. It is the end of the old covenant age. And so, um, but the parallel is important to understand that the, the, the temple was destroyed twice, once by the Babylonians in 586 BC, marking Israel's unfaithfulness in the Old Testament. And then again in, in the year AD 70 or 70 AD, uh, by the Romans marking the complete end of the Old Covenant age. Um, here's a, a passage from um, um, Isaiah 13 be, uh, that this describes the other thing that we should be aware of with this whole image of Babylon, that though the Babylonians invaded and destroyed the Old Covenant uh, Israel, the Old Temple, God then in turn in Isaiah said that the Babylonians themselves, because they weren't righteous and, so, and they became proud, would also be judged. And so this language from Isaiah chapter 13 about the fall of Babylon kind of connects to Revelation 18, and it's a narrative that now has been transferred from the actual nation Babylon of the Old Covenant to Israel, who's now being called Babylon. So here's, I'm just reading from Isaiah chapter 13, verses 19 through 22. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But the wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will dwell there, dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in the citadels, and jackals in their pleasant places. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. What I want everyone to see here is the echoing between this and what uh, Revelation says about Israel as Babylon. It's become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit. There's a, an echoing in the Old Testament judgment on Babylon in this New Testament judgment on Babylon, which is now referring to Israel. Any questions about that? I know that's a lot there to drink in. Ed? So does that mean that Israel today is, uh, would still be considered as Babylon? Um, no, because the specific um, narrative of, uh, like, that specific generation rejected the Son of God as leadership, but not every subsequent generation uh, rejected the Son of God. And so it's not true that the, um, that the sort of guilt of, of the crucifixion is something that perpetually belongs to every Jewish person forever. There's particular narrative um, about that. It is true, however, that the old covenant is over and, 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 and that the church has inherited the promises that God made to Israel that come only in Christ. And there is no there is no biblically biblical way to understand the that Judaism as a separate, equally valid covenant. It's it's you know there, there's obviously because of their reading of the scriptures that point to the Messiah, 
there's an opportunity for their their belief to to lead them back to the Messiah who has already come. But sometimes that gets that kind of language gets fuzzy in our time where it's like, well, God has different arrangements with everybody. So God speaks to everybody and God wants everybody to come to Jesus and 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 but and and but he's revealed himself fully and finally in Jesus and they're not other equivalent revelations to that. But no, not every Jewish person is. And that was always incidentally a um that's been a source historically of anti-Semitism, and it's not a, a good uh, part of the church's history, you know, that we we persecute the Jews because the Jews killed Jesus, and, and that whole kind of thing is, has been a, a very, very bad thing. So, no, we don't believe that. Any more than, than for example, um, as, 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 as English Christians, we 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 bear the guilt for every stupid thing some ancestor did, or or any more than is as if we hail from Ireland or England or other nations that people uh, wherever you know people might come from ethnically that because you're a descendant of that you bear the guilt of every stupid thing some tyrannical and bloodthirsty ruler did that that doesn't that doesn't follow from that now. It, it, it may follow that if you repeat the errors of your ancestors, you become the same kind of person they were. So there is a need to, you know, to learn the lessons and grow uh, like that. So. I, I had a question. question. Yes, please. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Actually, I had two questions. I hope you don't mind. One is... Um, <clears throat> This is the first time I've heard that the destruction of the Second Temple in AD 70 was the um, end of the Old Covenant, because I always assumed that it was just like when Jesus came and started his ministry, or when he died on the cross, and he said, it is finished. And then my second question was, um, is there any biblical significance to Israel now being a nation? You know, uh, that, you know, in 1948, is there anything special about that that we should consider, or is that just political? Yeah, to take those questions in order, um, <clears throat> the, the end of the Old Covenant age is marked by a number of things. Um, the principal thing, as you rightly point out, is that Jesus himself, <clears throat> in fulfilling the old covenant by his righteous life, faithful death and resurrection brings the old covenant to a close. The, the historical point being made by the destruction of the temple is that, um, that the, the, um, the fulfilling of the covenant by Jesus and the beginning of the new covenant and the rejection of him by first century Israel led to the physical end of the Old Covenant age in the destruction of the temple. So there's an historical fact, because the other simple fact of, of, of Old Testament religion, candidly, is it cannot be practiced without a temple. So it's, it's literal, though there's something called Judaism, um, you can't really practice the religion of the Torah with its required sacrifices the annual Day of Atonement, 
to make you right with God. You can't practice that without that temple place to offer sacrifices. So Old Testament Torah religion has been literally impossible since AD 70. And we would see this as in the province of God showing it's not only not possible, it's not necessary because the new um, liturgy, the new heavens and new earth, the new way that God deals with people carries on in the church where we come to, to God perpetually through the sacrifice of Jesus. And the church epitomizes the new people of, of, of God's new people portrayed in Revelation 4 and 5, Eucharistically gathering around the altar. So it's not necessary, but there's an historical fact to it. Um, the second question about the significance of Israel, um, it, the, the main thing that we, I think, should adopt a posture of saying is, you know, we, we just don't really know what God is doing with those things. The real problem that we that's been had with um, the real problem that's been had with. Uh, um, hold on a second. I just spilled a glass of water. I need to grab something. Just hold on. Anybody have a joke? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I am wondering if they need to turn off the mic in the pavilion because what yeah. I notice is there's a competing sound when he's speaking and there's a sound there. So I'm wondering if they could see the mic and maybe, I don't know. I have no idea how to turn it off. Okay. Because whenever there's a noise and it kind of interrupts his, um, yeah, it's the still problem. I, the I mean, problem is I don't think you can turn off the mic without turning off their speaker. It's the same thing. So if if, if we can't hear their noise, they can't hear us at okay. all. <laughs> I think okay. is the dilemma okay. there. All so right. um, sorry about that. I just dumped over a fairly large glass of water, and it was going to be hard to answer that question, thinking how it was seeping into everything. But I'm back. Yeah, it's always been kind of a drag race scene there. I just don't know. I don't know a way to, to deal with that. Uh, um, so, um, the problem uh, for those who've been around things called like prophecy radio and these kind of things have gotten into end time stuff is through this approach to scriptures called dispensationalism, uh, this group has, has a whole framework that's posited that the rebirth of Israel was the mark of the beginning of the last days and that what was gonna happen since Israel was, was reborn in 1948 uh, pretty soon uh, the rapture was going to come and the church would be taken away and God would just deal with Israel now at the end times and, and all these things would happen. And um, it's it's not biblical. It's it, and it's what the problem with it, because it's proved it's proved false in a number of um, of uh, renditions or books, uh, the most famous. Early book was How Lindsay is the Late Great Planet Earth, 
and then he was wrong and wrote another book and they're wrong and write another book and they keep writing new books. And every time some oil crisis shows up in the Middle East, there's a new book that, that associates some image from Ezekiel and Revelation to the new thing they're seeing. And um, it's been really destructive because the real, the real problem we have with that is that um, when you say publicly, this is what God is doing and you all need to repent and believe, and some people actually listen to you and repent and believe and jump on board, and then what you say doesn't happen, a lot of people get disillusioned. And that's never I think I think we lost you again, Bishop. I think we lost you. Could you turn up your microphone, please? Um, I didn't touch it. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't. I didn't. Um, I didn't do anything. Um, so, yeah, I don't think. Uh, I don't think it's your volume. I think it's just the collision of the uh, pavilion audio and your audio and you get this distorted let me, let me, try, let me try something here um carol raise your hand if you can hear me okay okay so i was just able to silence that but they you can still hear me but maybe so if you want to ask a question here i'll raise your hand that might be better there okay i think we got a solution so um so that one simple framework has been dispensed throughout conservative fundamentalist Christianity. If you've been around some evangelical church in the last generation and a half that's fairly fundamentalist or conservative, you've been taught some of this. And it's it's and the problem with it is that it's been proved false in so many different ways. I mean, I was when I came went through a conversion in in, in college, I used to go to a a, a Bible study every week with my dad called the Christian Businessmen's Fellowship. It was started by a uh, uh, Armenian guy, I think, Dimas Shikarian, and he, it was a bunch of Baptist guys. I like the dudes. They were good dudes. We get together, have breakfast, a little Bible study, occasional testimony, but they were all dispensationalists. And I remember, I remember people saying to me, I, and I remember a couple things about it. This is like late 80s, circa you know, 86, you know, no, excuse me, 84, 85. And um, one guy saying to me, you know, he was very certain that we were in the seven years of the Great Tribulation. And the one, the one thing that always bothered me about the, um, the framework is they were certain we were in this. And the more I thought about it over the years, I always wonder, well, you're so certain, but you don't seem to be very happy about it because it was all going to be, like Sherman's march to the sea, God was going to torch everything. And if you didn't get on that rapture bus, you know, you were left behind and all these things happened. But what I did, what I did, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a, a math PhD, but I, I can add. And so 1991, 92, 93 came by and I realized you know, that guy was wrong. We weren't in the last seven years of the Great Tribulation. And and um, that always troubled me. And so as, I, as I've studied the Bible more and I finally understood a right way to look at Revelation, which is this framework, you know, of, of, of that I think I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with you in, 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 as regard to Revelation, you realize this is so much that it's just complete nonsense. 
and it's um, but it's it's it both energized and then subsequently undermined and disillusioned the faith of so many people because they were wrong. And once you're wrong about that, well, you must be wrong about everything. So that's why I say to Lynn, what 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 does the rebirth of Israel in 1948 mean to all us? I have no idea. Um, you know, God God is faithful though, and maybe He has some work left to do with ethnic Israel to bring them back into the covenant, and we don't know that. And and um, you know, the one the one thing that most people recognize um, about Israel, just on a very practical level, if you've ever been there, you know, it, it's it's the one nation in the, in the East that's remotely like us. <laughs> if you go around and travel there and you go to Israel, you finally go, oh, I, I remember, I remember my, and so there, there's a commonality when they talk about the sort of Judeo-Christian kind of thing. There's a certain, there's a certain ethos and value system because we have our roots. Everything we're talking about is rooted in, you know, in, in the Torah, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, so. Anyway, hope that answered. That was a very long answer, but I think we're spending. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we we had worked our way through all that stuff, and now we're at verse three. Um, that that it be, it's become a dwelling place of demons because, or, or verse three four, all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. For the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Now, all these, this statement again needs to be understood um, in terms of Israel's vocation, because Israel was to be a light to lighten the nations, was to be God's witness to the world. And and in that witnessing to the world was to draw the world into worship of God. But instead, Israel became um, unfaithful and started committing fornication with the world. So Israel was drawn into the world's religion rather than the world being converted by Israel's religion. Um, incidentally, um, as, as, as a illustration of this um, in our morning prayer readings now we're, we're now studying the the story of Balaam and Balak and uh, uh, Balaam the pro the, the, the non-jewish prophet who is uh, who can't curse Israel because God doesn't you know God has a blessing but what the reason that Balaam um, becomes synonymous with uh, with uh, falsity in the in the lore of the of the of the Old Testament is that after Israel goes by and he doesn't curse them, the way he the way he helps the Moabites and Balak to undermine Israel is he counsels them to invite the Jewish males to the pagan feasts where they can sleep with the Moabite women, and this is how Israel's witness gets undermined because she becomes unfaithful. She begins to participate in pagan worship and gets drawn into the judgment that comes upon the pagans. So it's always the church's 
unfaithfulness with the world. It's supposed to be a witness to the world. And when we get drawn into the world and are compromised, then that, that's the, and that's, that's the fornication that is not, she is supposed, we are supposed to be the bride, not the unfaithful spouse. And so this condemnation of the kings of the earth have drunk the wine of the wrath or fornication. The kings of the earth committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich to the abundance of her luxury. Um, the commerce uh, of this, um, we'll talk about a little bit more in the later lament in the chapter. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention this in terms of the merchants of the earth, um, reading this passage from, from uh, John uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And we notice that in, the, in John's gospel, the cleansing of the temple happens at the beginning of his gospel rather than at the end. And Jesus, the pastor of the Jews, was at hand. And Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out to the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the temples. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Um, so the, the, um, the temple area had become an area of commerce rather than a place where people drawn to the one true God became a place where, where all the people in power made a lot of money on the traders who came through and the pilgrims who came through. Um, we should note that the um, it's a, a translation which isn't uh, good. It's all corrected here in the New King James. But all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath. The word wrath there is not the same word throughout Revelation where we talk about the wrath of God, which is his righteous judgment. It's, it, it really should be translated the passion of her fornication. It's her unbridled desire. She can't resist the, the the wealth and all the things the nations offer, so she draws. She she gets drawn into unfaithfulness with her, epitomized by the commerce in the temple. In verse four, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, "Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven." And God has remembered her iniquities. So the message of the church then was to separate from the religious system that had rejected Jesus so as not to share in its faith. We have this in um, Acts chapter 2, verse 40, after Peter gave his sermon on Pentecost, telling people to repent and believe, he says, be saved from this perverse generation, Acts 2.40. And this, um, this idea of come out of her, my people, is epitomized by the command that Jesus gave to his disciples to literally flee Jerusalem. In the, and we've, we've, we talked about this in a previous Bible study in those sections of Scripture that are called the, quote, Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about destruction of the temple. He said, uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then flee to the temple. 
don't go back and get your stock just run. And the tradition uh, of the um, of the uh, church recorded by the historian Eusebius is that prophets, before the Romans came, prophets warned the church to leave. And the church, the early church, successfully left Jerusalem, crossed the Jordan River, and was not judged. We we talked about this when we when we talked about um, in the passage where Jesus said they will see the Son of Man coming with clouds, with power and great glory, and we've discussed how that coming with clouds refers to the Daniel seven passage where one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds to receive from the Father, from God, dominion. And we talked about how coming with clouds, therefore, is a euphemism for coming in judgment. So when they see the Son of Man coming with clouds, they will see the Son of Man coming in judgment. And I pointed out to you, and I'll highlight it again, that Jesus talks about this twice once to his disciples and once to the Sanhedrin when he's being tried. And when he's talking to, the, to his disciples, he says, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. That is not you guys, but they will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. When he's on trial with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, and they say, are you the Messiah? He says, well, you say that I am. And he says, and you, will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. Because his disciples would not be there for it, but the leadership, they would. They would experience judgment at the hands of the Romans. So, hope that makes a little bit of sense. We keep going over it, eventually it might, it might kind of uh, sink in. This whole idea of, uh, that the sins have reached up to heaven, um, is throughout the scriptures. Um, it goes back to Genesis where um, uh, God said to Cain, uh, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me th for the ground. Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because sin is very grave. That's Genesis 18, 20, 21. It's this idea of sins reaching up, the idea that injustice cries out for God to do something about it. And, and it can't be it can't be unseen the nature of the world that God has made. Um, and on, uh, of Babylon in Jeremiah 51 uh, 9 through 11, we, we would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her and let her go, everyone to his own country. Her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. So, just want to hearken again that this sins reach to heaven is just a biblical image of, of sins being um, significant and culpable. Verse 6, because her sins are, have reached up, then verse 6, render, render to her just as she has rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works, in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. Um, in Exodus 22, 4 and 7, this is the Torah justice standard, a just recompense, sometimes which meant a double repaying for the error. And Jesus said, 
in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. He's talking about there in terms of generosity as we give generously or receive generously, but it, it, it goes the other direction. We're, we're ungenerous, it will be withheld from us. We commit evil, evil will be repaid to us. Um, and then there's this um, cup theology. The cup which he has mixed, mixed double for her, which is also uh, an Old Testament theme. Um, and, and the whole idea of the cup here, there's two cups, obviously the, the cup, this is my blood of the New Testament, and then there's this cup of judgment that is drunk. And it's the blood of Jesus that either gives life to those who repent and believe it and receive it as life-giving and cleansing, or the cup of judgment to those who refuse and rebel and therefore are culpable for the blood. Um, as the crowd ominously says on Good Friday, his blood be on us and on our children, which has a double meaning, which is um, worthy of meditation. Um, so in the positive sense, in the, old, in the Old Testament, Psalm 16, you know, or Psalm 23, I'll have to go Psalm 16, oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Psalm 116, it will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. But for those who reject God, um, verse uh, Psalm 11, 6, upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For in the hand of the Lord, this is Psalm 75, 8, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain down and drink. Then Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. This whole idea of, of a cup. Verse 7. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will utterly be burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The, um, the idea of, of being a queen and no widow is wording from Isaiah chapter 47, verse 6, um, judgment against Babylon. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. 
But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. You shall come upon you in the day of your fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. The point making here is all this imagery just comes right out of the Old Testament as images of judgment. Now, this whole idea of uh, burned with fire has an interesting uh, illusion that in, in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7 and 9, the family of the priest is held to a higher standard. Um, Leviticus 27 through 9 says, They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy. Therefore, you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I am the Lord who sanctify you. For I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. So this image here where it says that she will be burned with fire, the burning of Jerusalem, is this her holy status as the daughter of, of God, that she has profaned, is now taking upon herself the judgment that comes on the daughter of, 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 of the holy in Leviticus 21, 7 through 9. Verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. In this section of, of uh, lament, um, there are three groups, and the first is the kings um, who, who, uh, who lament. And part of, of the idea of this is that in Jerusalem's judgment, is, it portends their own, because in all cases where God uses kings to judge his people. The kings themselves are subsequently judged. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. And that last one is, is, um, is it's an echo of, um, the condemnation of Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 12. Um, Javon, Tubal, and Mesech, Mesech were your traitors. They bartered human lives and vessels for bronze for your merchandise. And the whole idea that, that the, um, this is always the judgment on, on commerce, uh, not that, is not that making good things and uh, having good businesses that produce good things is a bad thing, 
but when the profit motive becomes um, the opportunity to mistreat people, then uh, the Bible condemns it. And, and uh, it is a kind of, um, it, is a, it is one of the, 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 the problems of our culture with, with capitalism is that very often the bottom line is allowed to, to justify all manner of treatment of people. And uh, uh, there are complex questions in terms of, you know, companies, you know, that aren't profitable and have to lay people off. That's something you just have to do. But there's no question that we have certainly over the last generation, a lot of situations where profit was squeezed out of, of, of enterprises and people were um, not considered at all as the as as a uh, as a value in the equation. I still remember that it was a long time ago, probably too old for you for many of you. When I was in business school, that the, the big test case of the Ford Pinto, where Ford knew that they, their rear end collisions caused fires and would cost so many lives, so they began to calculate the cost of retrofitting the cars over against the number of lives would be lost. And there are actually calculations that they didn't actually fix it right away. Uh, because, but but in, in, a, in, a, in a value of life, you just say, no, stop making them because we know this is something that's going to kill people. And, and that's, that's, so when we talk about the bodies and souls of men, it's certainly harking here to actual slavery, but any time the value of people is, is subject to, to economics, there's a problem. And that's, 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 this comes up, the bodies and souls of men. The fruit, I'll read on from verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, from all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of torment, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. When one hour, such great riches came to nothing. The fine linen, purple, scarlet, adorned with gold, this was the vocation of Israel to be a queen, to be God's bride. And instead, she's become, she's sub subject to the judgment of, of the harlot. Um, there's a, a Jewish writer, uh, uh, Alfred Edersheim, like I think it was late 1900s, who wrote some very good books giving background information about um, Jerusalem. One book's called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Another book by Edersheim is called The Temple, Its Ministry and Services, because he was a Jewish convert. I think he was an Anglican, actually. Uh, but he went back and looked at the services and did a lot of research. But he reports uh, this. In the streets and lanes of Jerusalem, everything might be purchased. The production of Palestine or imported from foreign lands, nay, the rarest articles from the remotest parts, exquisitely shaped, curiously designed, and jeweled cups, rings, and other workmanship, the precious metals, glass, silks, fine linen, woolen scarves, purple and costly hangings, essences, ointments, and perfumes as precious as gold, 
articles of food and drink from foreign lands. In short, what India, Persia, Arabia, Media, Egypt, Italy, Greece, and even the far off lands of the Gentiles yielded might be had in these bazaars. Ancient Jewish writings enable us to identify no fewer than 118 different articles of import from foreign lands, covering more than even modern luxury is devised. That's from Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, volume one, page 116. So, the, and the point here is, is that um, this prosperity has been chosen instead of faithfulness to God. Because it's very clear that faithfulness to God in the Old Covenant was to bring God's blessing. But they, they are choosing the commerce and the, the ease of the status quo, but have rejected the Son of God. So that's the, com that's the condemnation on the commerce. Continuing in the second half of verse 17. Every shipmaster all travel by ship sailors and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, who is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, she is made desolate. It could be this idea of shipmasters here connects to the idea that we had the description of the harlot a couple of chapters back. It was she who sat on many waters and the idea of the dispersion of Judaism throughout the world. And so people traveling on, on the waters is kind of an image used. And again, she was supposed to bless the world but because the world became complicit, be participated with her in fornication, the world is going to share to some degree in her judgment. So this is why I put the mourning of those around. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So everyone weeps and mourns except those who dwell in heaven. Who have been vindicated and who are these um again this is where i want to kind of hearken to the identity of the church um look up a verse that i uh So in, in, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, um, oh, 324. Hmm. Well, as I made verse 312, I think I wrote it down wrong, but here it is. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. I will write on him my new name. So the promise to this church in Revelation in Philadelphia was um, that 
the overcomer, the conqueror, that is the one who remained faithful, would be a, a, a pillar in the temple of God, not at some later point, but we have to remember the imagery here that um, the, the physical temple in Jerusalem has been fulfilled by Christ, has been replaced by the actual temple in heaven, but Christ, through the Holy Spirit, dwells in us, and we dwell in him, so we're always there. And as we live in our prayer, as we live in Christ, I was looking at one of the Psalms uh, we read at the office the other day, looking at some of the language, um, where it says, actually, blessed is the person who hides in him, who takes his refuge in God. And as we live in Christ, in our prayer, we live in this place of the temple, and we rejoice because we're, that's our, our as St. Paul says, that our citizenship is in heaven, and we rejoice over the heavenly victories, but everyone else is, is weeping and mourning. And this is, again, the, the, um, the, the verse from Ephesians that, that I think ties this together, where he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, um, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this doesn't speak of some time in the future we'll go to heaven. There is some time in the future when what we now experience will be fulfilled in a fuller way, but it's a current and present reality. So the rejoicing now is, is, is now on the part of God's people. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, thus with violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. It makes me think the millstone of Jesus' statement in, in Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. He would drown in the depth of the sea. Continue on verse 2. The sound of the harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any kind shall be found in you anymore. The sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine on you anymore. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, and by your sorcery all nations were deceived. So what is lost in judgment? Music, craftsmen who make things, millstones, the fruit of the harvest, the lampstand, which probably refers to the temple, and marriage, not only men and women being married, but also the union of Israel and her God, symbolized by that union in the temple, is, now, is gone. So to sum this up, um, Israel is being judged because it a manner of vocation and rejected the one God who was sent. Christ became the faithful witness who fulfilled Israel's vocation, but the nation rejected him. 
Thus, the judgment that would have been made in Israel's favor against the nations is instead made in Christ's favor against his unfaithful old covenant people. Christ and his faithful followers will fulfill Israel's vocation to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Now, this last verse here is the one that really highlights the identification of this Babylon of 18 with Israel. And it says, verse 24, and in her, that is in this entity, was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. And so I from Matthew 23, verse 34 through 36. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. On you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. prophets and saints all were slain on the earth. That that statement of verse 24 simply can't be made of any, you know, it, it's not only can it be made of any other national entity, it, it was made by Christ about first century Israel. So there's a lot there. Uh, and I, I find that um, the significance for this, I think, for us, because the judgment stuff is never very fun to read, um, it's why nobody ever reads it. <laughs> it's why we, it's the it's reason why we read the Bible, we need to read it all, because when we snippet our selections, we discover that um, we end up um, reading the nice parts and, and skipping the other. But there's, there's uniqueness to what Revelation is talking about, the final um, rejection of Old Covenant Israel of God. Um, as the word of God, the, the evangelistic message goes out into the world, it reminds us, though, that, that we're, culp we're responsible to respond. And though God has spoken, it creates a necessity of people who have heard to respond. Um, God's character revealed in Scripture is that he is very long-suffering. That is, this final judgment on Jerusalem took a long time to get to. Even after he sent his son, there's a whole generation of the church preaching, saying, repent. And so for us, I, it, you know, God is, is long-suffering, but it does remind us that, that we need to take seriously the word of God and, you know, our weaknesses and struggles to try to do what God wants, God will be gracious with. But he's not um, real fond of willful rejection. And so we want we we want to we realize the judgment aspect reminds us that we that that there there that um, reality and this isn't God it it's simply a lot of times I think our current world lives in a kind of unreality it's like um, I don't know I feel like it's I, I'm I'm going to digress just a bit but it it's like what the, I, I've heard that modern monetary policy means 
you can just print all the money you want and spend it, and it'll never have a consequence. Whereas in a real, real world, know that there has to be some balance between what you spend and what you can afford and what you can do. And the same thing with judgment, that, that God's created a world where certain things are, are right and the, the, the life works when we operate within the way God has orchestrated the world and blessings accrue to it. When we reject it, God's word, and specifically his word made flesh, and live that there, it'll, it'll be a natural consequence that, that, that things will accrue that we can call judgment because it won't work out well. We're living in unreality. When we live in unreality, we can't produce anything worthwhile in that space. And that's the ultimate judgment on Israel. Having rejected reality made flesh, there was nothing left to have. There's no life to be had once you reject God. So just a, a reminder on that is a, a, to, um, to uh, about that. It is a pretty heavy chapter. So we'll get into some stuff, I think, next time. I think we get... Uh, uh, the, the the praising of God's people and the, and the participation and and I think ultimately what we're supposed to take from this is is an attitude of 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 a kind of confident joy in the midst of the trials of life. What Revelation was telling a persecuted early church is that they had already won. They just needed to hold on to faith and faithfulness didn't matter what it looked like around them. This was a victory assured. And this is not for us to be afraid, but to be confident because what God says will happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words won't pass away. And that's really the, the rejoicing is, is as, and that's what, you know, we live a life of prayer and stay connected. We have a joy because we have a victory that nothing in this world can, can touch or take from us. So we're a little bit over. And any questions before we uh, wrap it up? I just heard someone just say, uh, spoiler alert, I think God wins. So that helps me sometimes. <laughs> Thank you for this. This is amazing. Well, my favorite book because it has so much to it, which makes it hard also. But it makes it great because you, there's always a new thing to see in it. It's not... It's not just uh, you know, you're you're always coming to Revelation kind of looking like a contemplative, and each time you say, "Oh, I didn't see that before. I didn't see that before." You know, so. Was it early? So it was good to be with you today online. Um, I hope I'll be back in person. I had a um, a very faint positive COVID test yesterday. I'm hoping today's test will be completely clean. I feel fine. I worked out this morning. I'm not sick, but. It says I am, so I can't breathe on anybody yet. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. All right. Dean, Carol, good job. What's that? Oh, what was the name of the author you referred to from 1800, the book, uh, Life and Times Jesus? Edersheim. Edersheim? E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M, Edersheim. He was oh, a Jewish con. Are you, are you going to bless us? 
Oh yeah, let's pray our way out. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Oh, I'm Vicky. Okay, it is Vicky came in. That's good. Good to see. Hi, Mimi. You're muted, so I can't hear you. <clears throat> it's good to see you. We'll talk soon. Mimi, if you could unmute yourself, I could probably say hi to you quickly. <laughs> <laughs> 